want to ask you, how are you all doing? <clears throat> Even though you can't really reply, it's a bit of an unfair question. <clears throat> let me see, let me make sure I keep this, you can remind me to keep this close. Maybe we can all do that for each other. You can wave at me if I get wayward with the mic. Hmm. Tired? Anybody tired? Anybody awake? I'm not doubting that you're awake. I'm using it in this Dhamma sense of awake. Where we're, <clears throat> we're here and now. And we know what's arising as what is arising. We know a sensation as a sensation and not having to mean something <coughs> about who I am. I don't have to define myself by what arises this kind of awake. Sometimes. Sometimes not, right? <laughs> Some things arise and we glue to them. Thoughts arise, feelings arise, images arise, ideas arise. Ideas about myself arise, pain in the body arises. And there isn't just that knowing of what's arising. There can be, before we know it, like a gut reflex, there can be a, got to do something about that. Oh no, not this again. It means this about me. See if I can push it away. See if I can pretend to be with it and breathe with it, but actually I really want it to go away. Our attention is a precious, precious gift. And it's not our fault. There's no, no error, no wrongness in the fact that our attention gets captured but we can do well to give refuge to our attention, the gift of attending to something. Refuge in Dhamma, refuge in the framework that lets me and invites me, encourages me to attend, to experience, and see that actually Maybe it's not how I thought it was. Maybe I don't yet see the whole picture. Maybe, as Anushka was pointing out last night, this beautiful framework from the Buddha, can I see that these, whatever they are, if I learn how to attend skillfully, I see them changing. They change anyway. But I can see that process. I can see that if I grasp, if I fixate, if I try and push it away, try and keep it, I suffer. And as I see, start to see all of this, I can settle back and take more refuge. Rest back. Breathe out. Feel my feet on the ground, 
trust a little bit more the Dharma. And I don't just mean the Buddha's Dharma, but the Dharma that he spoke well of the nature of things. I can understand and take my place in the nature of things. Again, as Anushka said, in a way that is um, not pushing against, not pulling toward. This is not a passive position. This is a timeless poise. And from there, real response, intelligent response, creative response, new response, new ways of seeing and responding can arise. This timeless gesture not pulling or pushing. This little sheet, if you've still got it, have you got it? We have a little look if you've got one. We've got more for those that didn't get one last night. This is um, a reflection that's part of daily recollections in many monasteries. Actually, Anushka knew it from monasteries in Sri Lanka. I knew this from monasteries in Britain, from the Thai tradition. They reflect daily on various teachings. And if you look at this one, I, I, we both really love this part. We picked it out. Um, and I imagine we love it because it's been of great benefit and speaks to us as human beings. I didn't ask you why you loved it. And if, so it's talking about the Dhamma, this, this understanding of the principles that underpin phenomenal existence. And we can take refuge in Dhamma. Right? So if you look at the ideas, the epithets, the attributions given to Dhamma, it's sanditiko, it's apparent here and now, you can see it on the sheet. And then I remind myself, oh yeah, apparent here and now, that's where I can take refuge. Not in once I've sorted this thing out, or when, if I wish I'd had a different thing that happened yesterday. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's, it's so painful, isn't it? I wished I had a different thing that happened, whatever the yesterday was. But here and now, okay, there's something about this activity here and now that can... If you go to number four, Openaiko, can you see that one? It leads onward. This leads somewhere good. If I invest my attention here and now, this can lead onward. And from the Buddha's point of view, onward means to more wisdom, to more compassion, to freeing up our tendency to push and pull experience internal experience, external experience. Akaliko, timeless. What does that mean? When you hear that word timeless, and we know very well the world of time, and sometimes in part of the legacy in modern culture is that time becomes the Dhamma, right? We're 
looking at the clock, we're measuring how long till the end of the sitting. We're, oh my God, how did I get to 50 and I'm still doing this? You know, we're measuring years and minutes in time. We know the world of time. What is being spoken about that is timeless, that is not just constructed through the construction? And we know that time is a convention, it's not an ultimate reality. No, there is no June the 20, whatever it is today. That's why we're also time <laughs> 20 something. It's funny that as soon as we hear time, I go, June the 26th, oh, it's my brother's birthday tomorrow, I have to send him a card. Oh, time. Time. We know that world very well. It can become a god. What is timeless? What is being pointed to? Does that word, if we don't try and wrap our mind around it, as soon as we wrap our mind around something, time arises again. I arise again. And my sense of myself in duration arises again. The word may not mean something to you, but it might. It might resonate with our heart and soul. If, that, if you love that word, reflect on it. It's being pointed to as something that we can take refuge in and know. And then just... The last one I'll mention now, this lovely one from the Buddha, this great word, I love it. Eipasiko. Eipasiko, which apparently, I mean, in English they've translated it as encouraging investigation. And apparently it's the word that that before the Buddha, you know, he wasn't a Buddhist as such, he was a guy who woke up and other people wanted to learn from him. And when they did, he said... Eipasiko, come and see for yourself. Come and check it out. Invite the investigation. Come and have a look. What can be found out if we take refuge here, if we train in these ways? This is taking refuge in Dhamma. So I want to reflect a little bit about attention your capacity, I don't want it to be abstract, I want it to be your moment to moment, you are always attending to something. Moment to moment, we are attending, we give that precious gift of that. It's like it's us, isn't it? We turn ourselves to something and we attend to the breath on a good moment to a sensation when we remember. (coughs) And when we're not taking refuge in Dhamma, where does our attention go? Where does it go and how does it go? And the good news is, that's not wrong. But the Dhamma asks us to see where you give your attention and how you give your attention. Does it lead onward? Or does it lead in circles? Does it lead to fulfillment of your heart? Or does it lead you to being dried up and withered, lost? 
Leaning onward does not mean leaning onward to a thoroughly pleasant body forever. It is not about pleasure. This Dhamma is not about getting the conditions. Goldilocks style. Is it Goldilocks? Or is it? Yeah, it's Goldilocks. Who, who wanted the porridge just right? I can't remember the story now. It's Goldilocks. Get Goldilocks. I'm getting it just right for me. That's a. Uh, tiring, at least, at the very least. Soulless. And actually. Um, devastating because we take ourselves out of this totality. There's a lovely word in the Dhamma tradition called Viveka. Viveka. And you hear it quite a lot in the tradition and it's translated in English as um, a few things actually. First translation is seclusion. I never used to like that translation. Seclusion sounded lonely to me. Seclusion sounded like, yeah, I might be lonely, or is that the price I have to pay for wisdom? Does it mean that we have to give up relationships or? But I like another translation, which is um, non-bonding. Now we could also hear that thing, oh God, again, I have to sever myself from everything I love. No, 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 no. Bonding is the gluing (laughs) to things. The way that when we don't know how we're attending, where our refuge is, our attention is looking for something. It's looking for something. Do you recognize that? Your attention, when we don't know where we where we want to place it, how to place it, what to give it refuge in, it, it wants something to bond to. It wants something to kind of prop it up or support it or confirm it or hold it. And this isn't wrong either. This is a primary, almost like a primary, um, I don't like the word wiring, but it's a primary thing for attention to seek something. You know, you think of us as little babies. It's like we're, we're primed to seek for and bond, to find the breast. <laughs> If we're lucky. Non-bonding here is this unconscious being compelled for our attention to try and glue itself sometimes to anything that will have me. And if we don't know what we're doing with our attention, someone else can usefully use it to sell you something. And you know what it's like in, I, sometimes when I go to London, I'm on the tube, and I'm on, this, on these escalators, and there's, now the adverts have to move to get your attention. And you know, they're, they're colorful and interesting and loud, and my attention goes, oh, look at that. Oh, 
Maybe I do want to go to that show. Didn't know I wanted to go to that show. Maybe I do. Oh, maybe I need to look like her. She's obviously how you're supposed to look these days. You know, our attention can be captured by someone else's attention. What if someone else deems for us as valuable? And yes, that show might be beautiful, and yes, I might want to go to that dentist. But how free is my attention? Or is it compelled? Is it looking, saying, please tell me what's valuable. Please tell me where I can rest. Please tell me what's precious. Viveka, non-bonding, points to freedom, freedom with attention. Which means the attention is not compelled to go to the loudest thing, the most colourful thing, the most painful thing, the most pleasurable thing, the most comforting thing. Instead, what guides attention is and comes is wisdom. If I go down this road, where will it lead? Because I've been there before, <laughs> I know. But sometimes, do you know this, when you're kind of at a loss what to do with yourself, especially here, you know, where does your attention go when you're at a loss? Anybody found themselves hovering at the notice board, looking for something to read? Maybe that can hold my attention, looking for something to... Maybe there's a more interesting kind of tea you can have. What can I do with my attention? We, there used to be the phrase, it may still be, but this is the television era, before the computer era. Um, we used to call it glued to the telly. Many people still say that, I think some of my vocabulary got stuck in like 1985 or something. Glued to the telly. And isn't it that sometimes, and I've heard people say that so sincerely to me, students like, I want to go sit at night, but I can't even take myself to bed because I'm, I'm glued to watching this show. And it's not that I want to watch it as such, but I can't unglue because I, I'm afraid of what will happen. Not that something bad is going to happen, but I don't know how to be without my attention bonded to something that can hold it. And sometimes we have to go down those roads millions of times before we get the suffering in it. And, um, and sometimes we need ourselves to not go down those roads. We need help to not go down those roads if it's serious addictions, for example. Or if it's not serious addictions. You know, sometimes I remember this um, when box sets came out, whenever that was. <laughs> box sets of DVDs, and um, I bought my husband The Wire. That's, uh, really liked the first episode, so I bought, bought him the box set. It was an American TV series. But then you could watch all the episodes without having to go to bed and wait till next week, like it used to be in 1985. <laughs> it's like, oh, goody, we can watch the next one. Great. Oh, 
glued, attention is captured, it's got something to hold it, it feels good as the characters and get to know them live their life and my attention gets vivified and I'm in Baltimore and is it Baltimore? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learn new expressions and a third episode. Says man, should we should stop after three bubbles now? And after four episodes, I felt hungover. I hadn't drunk anything. I felt hungover. My attention, whatever it is, nothing wrong with it. was a really interesting show, but that compelled. There's dukkha there to be compelled. To not be able to pick something up and put it down. We can really only investigate something. We're only free with our attention. Well, we're free to pick it up and we're free to put it down. Box set, thought, sensation, feeling, mind state, mood, breath. We can try and glue to the breath. And normal. It's like I'm supposed to be with the breath. <laughs> Maybe that can hold me, that, that's going to get me what I need. And it can have a desperation behind it, or an anxiety, or just that flickering human vulnerability of, please, show me what to do with this gift of attention. No one's shown me. And it just goes either all over the place, or it gets locked into things. We have patterns of attention, have you noticed? And in Dharma practice, what, what is wonderful and humbling is that as we settle a bit more, we start to see our own patterns of attention. I'll give some examples. We have patterns and habits of attention just as we have patterns and habits of behavior. Just as a person you know, anyone you know, think of them pattern and the shape how they walk down the road. It's not like anybody else, is it? If you look and you don't really can't see the, make out the colours or who they are, but you see them at a distance and you know you can sense, see from the gates. Their style of walking is completely unique. It's their heads a certain way, the angles are a certain way, there's all kinds of detail to it. If you see, you'll see. We all have these kind of signature shapes as we walk. It's quite fun, actually, if you have a kind friend who can point out how you do it. <laughs> Not someone who goes, oh my goodness, you walk like that. One of my friends, he's, a, he's gifted in body work. He's a Qigong teacher and, um, and um, cranial sacral practitioner. And he once very kindly pointed out to me, we were teaching a camp, and so it's on a big field. So I'd have to get from one end of the field to the other, and I didn't know I had a star. We think we're neutral somehow, don't we, on some level. And he said, oh, wow. Do you know you can't walk like this? <laughs> <laughs> he did it kinder than that. He did it kinder than that. And the way he showed me, by, by the, the way he um, kindly did it through his body, I was like, oh, 
Say, like my mum. <laughs> you know, it's like this sort of urban, I didn't do, I couldn't do the proper thing because I had the mic in the way, but sort of head forward and looking determined and no one's going to mess with me down the high street, come along. <laughs> we think it's us. It's a, it's a shape, it's a pattern, it's not wrong. It can have helped us survive, it might have got us what we needed or at least got out of trouble. But just like with our attention, if we want freedom, we do well to see the patterns of our attention. Kindly. Our attention has patterns of where it goes, doesn't it? Like, we think it's a choice. Sometimes we have this illusion of freedom. No, no, I'm choosing to think this thought. Did you? Or did it just go boing and you went, oh? This, and there it goes. No, it's me. I made, I, I'm responsible for this emotion. I made it happen. I'm, it's me. It's who I am. And we forget. Sorrow arises. If I don't pick it up and glue and say there's something wrong with that, but I give it room, feel my feet on the ground, and not clutch it as who I am or who I shouldn't be, then that too can start to show itself in Dhamma. It is anyway changing. It will anyway move. But we can be here and now, timeless, and be in relationship in such a way that we can be free in the midst of things we think are in the way of our freedom. Can we be a sad Buddha? I remember one of my Zen teachers saying that, you know, sometimes we have ideas about freedom as if there shouldn't be anything that looks painful or doesn't fit our idea of spiritual and when he first said this idea of no you can't be a sad Buddha but what would a sad Buddha be I would imagine the Buddha a Buddha it doesn't mean he's locked in or she or they are locked in it might mean sensitive to the sorrow of the world, sensitive to the state of things where beings cannot thrive. It's different than wallowing or collapsing, but the sorrow that would touch the sensitive, receptive heart of an awakened one. One way that awakening is described is that one who is awake in a moment can embrace, touch, and transcend all conditions. The mind state, the body state, here and now, how is it? 
the other person, what is it to embrace with attention without fixating on the other person? Wouldn't that be a great way to be in relationship? Rather than, or as a kind of binary option, when the attention has no malleability. Embrace, include, and get wider than. Transcend doesn't just mean up. Transcend means get wider than. It means climb beyond the limitation. Wider, deeper. The tree, the mind state, subtle states of consciousness, touching, knowing, and widening. The attention freedom. And then feel free to pick up, care for, free to put down. So do you see any of the patterns of where your attention goes? Some of us go always to the past, always to the future in our thoughts. Some, some of us have a pattern of attention where we're always looking for the thing that's wrong. Apparently that's got some evolutionary advantage. <laughs> but evolutionary advantages aren't always um, advantageous for awakening. You know, to, to look for what the threat is or what's wrong or needs fixing. You can find out, does your attention always go in particular places? And does it have a style, like a style of walking? Is your attention more towards the vague, or floppy, or scatty? Is it more towards the intense and boring a hole in? <coughs> Is it more towards the like a butterfly, like, oh, I'll have that little breath there, and this sensation here. Oh, and a little bit of a cup of tea there. Is it like, what else can it be like? Like a hammer. Anything that arises that's painful, I can <laughs> Some of you have heard this story from my friend. He, he noticed one of his patterns of attention after meditating. Sometimes we know, only notice after. And he came back from pra- practicing for many months in Thailand. I think he came back to the UK. And he went to a village fair. It's funny, English village fairs. Oops, was that, was that a bit rude? <laughs> Some of these funny games they have, that funny English games. Um, and his wasn't that, I've seen it at a fair, his, well, I don't know where it was, but anyway, the game was called Whack-A-Mole. And I think these fake moles come out of the ground and you have a hammer and you have to kind of bop them back in the ground before they, you know, see how many you can get. <laughs> Great kind of things we did with our attention. And he realised when he was playing it, it could be good fun, he realised, oh my God, that's what I've been doing in my meditation. <laughs> he suddenly saw, it's like every time a thought came up, every time a thing. <laughs> How many can you shoot down so we can have spaciousness and clarity? That's a great insight, isn't it? A really good insight, because we think it's just, we think we're neutral. We think, oh yeah, attention is this thing and it's kind of objective. No. Science has gone beyond that now. 
No, there's a pattern, there's a shape. Check it out. See what you see. It can be really illuminating, humbling. And we can't see it until we get another vantage point. So we practice coming to body, coming to bum on the chair, feet on the ground. For many reasons, but one is to get a bit of room, get a bit of a vantage point on this whole mix of, God help us, a body and mind ahead, and attention and doing our best to understand it. Now this, it might sound like, I don't know what kind of patterns of attention I've got, I'm just barely seeing the thought and coming to my breath. That's okay. That's brilliant. That's the investment we make. We keep coming back to the anchor, to something that goes a bit slower than the speed of all that stuff. Sometimes we have to sit here long enough and get thoroughly disillusioned with our mind and all its promises. Not that there's anything wrong with minds, they can, they're beautiful. When they're in the service of what we want to dedicate our life to this moment to. Mind is a beautiful thing. But sometimes it's not tethered to an intention or a value. And then whatever the dominant culture's values can pull us. And some of those values might be very fine and some of them really are not. We're living in an age where the disparity of wealth is worse than ever. And I heard the other day, eight men have 50% of the world's wealth, something like that. And we could just say, how is them? But these things, everything is in a system, it's all connected. There's something of structures, of ideas, of what is valued that is being supported, of which we could say they are an inevitable outcome. How we attend, what we value, this is where we invest for ourselves, for our well-being and for each other's well-being. This is not a small undertaking. Investigate it, 
see where it goes. Some teachings. Knowing what we value. So that, that sometimes not happen, I don't know. Is actually doing a thorough investigation. Value, knowing what's precious, is a lot related to the heart. <coughs> deep heart work, which we're doing together with this inside practice. It is part of the inside practice, it's not separate. Our heart, for some of us, is the last thing to come online. Some of us lead with the heart. And for some of us, it can feel slow in coming online. Now, I don't always know what I'm feeling, where I value. Don't worry if the heart is slow coming online. It will come if we sincerely keep practicing. And body. Today's theme has been body body is a way of tethering attention, slowing it down. How's it going? How's it going knowing body is body? It's not easy for most of us. It's not easy for most of us. If it's any consolation, for any of you who are finding that really difficult to sink into, inhabit, you know, and every time Anushka and I say, come into the body or feel your feet or, um, you know, let your attention and knowing sink into the body, if you feel like, oh my God, if they say that one more time, I'm going to whack them all. <laughs> I, you know, whatever, if that's your experience, I, I know that very well for myself. For some, for, for what it, I'm not going to go into all the reasons now, but for some of us, uh, it can be very hard. It cannot sometimes feel like an easy place to come, either through habits of just going up to the head, sometimes through bodily experiences in our lives that have been too hard to bear, and we've kind of left ourselves in some way. This can be worked with, this can be healed. Keep plugging away. Come to the pads of your feet. Uncurl your toes. Start there. And not only start there, think about body not just as your body in this little envelope that, that we've learned to call myself. <coughs> There's another possible uh, narrative about the modern era is, or the post-modern era is that we have a smaller and smaller conception of um, self in the sense of um, many of us are sort of led to believe a kind of narrative that attention, that which knows, that which is intelligent, is all located somewhere just in the front part of your skull. And that all the knowing comes from there, knowing that's valuable that can be trusted, has to be measured, weighed up, looked at, considered, evaluated through measurement, through experimentation. Now this can be beautiful ways of knowing, but they are limited ways of knowing. 
And sometimes that valuing has taken us up here. Sometimes it's just too much impact of the body, so sensitive, we've kind of fled up or out. Coming into this body and even widening beyond this, and I, I think I want to finish soon, but I want to give an example from one of my students who said that she was happy for me to share this. Um, I shared it before, and she is a sincere practitioner and uh, has also experienced a lot of really difficult, um, traumatic things of bodily, body and mind wise in her life. And that came to surface some years ago, and she um, was quite desperate, actually, and getting quite freaked out and um, really wondering if she wanted to be here at all. And the instructions to be with the, her feet, she could do it a little bit, but too, very quickly it was too much to bear. And she told me that she, in desperation, um, one time went up onto Dartmoor, which is the area over here where we have wild ponies. These, um, they're different shapes, some of them these really great stocky guys and um, some a bit bigger. And she told me that in her desperation she went up there one day and a grey mare um, came over to her. I think she just stood there and the grey mare came over and put her face, the grey mare's face, her nozzle, onto this person's um, side of her face. And she wasn't a horsey person. She didn't know much about horses at that point. And she said that the horse must have been there for at least five or ten minutes. She doesn't know. A little bit timeless at the time. It was such a kind of privileged experience for her. And then she felt the grey mare kind of nudging her and nudged her. And so she sort of followed. She was like, okay, (laughs) my attention's not doing anything good anywhere else. I'll go here. Um, and the grey man nudged her to a black stallion um, and left her with the black stallion and the grey man and joined the herd. And the stallion was part of this herd of many, many mares and, um, and, ba- and young horses. And this, from her experience, this black stallion showed her um, how to be part of the herd and stood beside her and does. And she took me up there a few weeks ago and he came along. And I, I never had a particular strong understanding of why people are so into horses. I know I understand they're very intelligent, but something about the way he engaged me was quite striking. But for her, what she noticed, she said that then she would sit and herds think in herds. They don't think in meats. They think in herds. And that the herd, she said, she could tell that she had become, from the herd's point of view, a part of the herd when she was there. She'd sit out there for hours at a time. And she said when she saw them looking out for her, including her and that whole perception, something in her breath went... 
She wasn't trying to be with my body, her body, my feet. The conception, the idea about body, whose body, which body, what is body, what widened from this modern atomized sense that I'm this thing. Yes, we absolutely this. But something opened up for her, included itself in a knowledge of body that let her breathe out, touch the earth, find refuge. Her mind could slow down. She started to find value, meaningfulness. So when, and she's doing well, she's doing well, she goes regularly there, and she can't always go there, so she can also bring them to mind, and I think in the matter today, bringing to mind someone whose gaze we trust, who can hold us with a sense that speaks to us of something more than my limited conception of myself. So let's sit together for a minute. May all beings be able to breathe out in safety. May all beings be able to breathe out in love. May all beings know an attention that is light.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.